0: Tchau, <tos> tchau. I forgot a button. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the True Crime Squad. I'm Christy Brower, and I am here by myself tonight. Katie is off watching college regional softball for her daughter, and they won their first game 13 nothing. so a good start, a very good start. So I will be record- reporting on court by myself today and tomorrow. I will actually be in court in person tomorrow, which I am excited to... Um, do because I think it's going to be a really interesting witness. It's only a half day of court, and it's only one witness, and I think it's going to be pretty interesting. So we'll talk about that. But let's talk about Melanie Apolowski. So the decision had not actually been made about whether or not she could testify. They were going to go through uh, her husband Ian's um, testimony first, and then kind of see you know what was going to happen there. And so guess who just left town? Melanie Pulaski. She left Boise. We don't know if she's still under subpoena. We think it's very possible that she may be because they never did actually say for sure that she couldn't testify. They said there was a problem. As we know, she broke the exclusion rule. But then she just took off, you guys. Right. Good question. So has, will she be back as a witness or has she been, has she conveniently sabotaged being on the stand? I don't know if they're going to let her off that easy. Oh, okay. Oh, thank you. Nate just reported that the prosecution said she could leave town, but she is still under subpoena. Interesting. Cause I've been really wondering like, Is she going to face some criminal charges or something for this? Okay. Yeah. We knew she left Idaho. She did that already. Okay. So, but still under subpoena, but that she could leave. Okay. I, what does she know, you guys? It's got to be so much that she knows. And she's afraid. Maybe she's gone to visit Chad. (laughs) He said it like five minutes ago, and I was doing a different show at that time, which is why I didn't know that. So thank you all for telling me. So right, Snow Queen, what does she know? Everything. Right. So we'll see. We may not be done with her. We shall see because I, I don't know. I, I just do not want to see her get away with not having to testify. That is just not okay. Right, she's not a victim. She's not she knows exactly what went on, and she was a big part of of it for a long time, I think. It's just very frustrating because she cannot just get away with this, right? She's got to have some cub muffins here. But we have so many questions about her. Does she have a deal? Is that deal? If she does have a deal, is that deal um, affected by this, what she's chosen to do here? Big questions. Right. And hopefully she will catch a charge for Brandon. And we know that that's still a possibility. I don't know. And She's obviously scared. She's got a reason to be. But damn, I wanted to hear what she was going to have to say. Uh, Oh, yeah. Cranky. I wonder if she was willing to let her kids who scored dark to be murdered. Right. Because Brandon was also, you know, scored uh, dark. Can she plead the fifth if if it could incriminate her? Yeah, she could. See, we think that's what Audrey did in the grand jury. Yeah. Yeah, right. But the thing is, right, was she concerned about her own kids? I don't know, because Brandon took her kids and went into hiding with them, hid with them. But, yeah, maybe she was starting to get scared that something really would happen to her children, too. I don't know. But, damn it, we need to know what she knows. Pisses me off. Today in court, right, she would have lied. And, and she, if you've watched her interviews, she can't hardly complete a sentence. She's very difficult to talk to. Uh, she does, she speaks in a very roundabout way. Right. How involved were she and her husband of 10 days? Well, but we know that Ian immediately was like, oh, shit, I got to do something. This is, So he went to the police and he he did the recordings, right? And that's where that's where the hearing ended yesterday, is that the defense wanted to hear some of these recordings that he had made and turned over to law enforcement. So court started this morning with an argument. Uh, Today was a very contentious day. There was a lot of arguing in the beginning, of course, started that way. There was quite a bit throughout the day. And then it ended with another argument about tomorrow's witness. So we're going to talk about all of that. But there was a big to do. um, And this started this morning uh, without the jury in the room because they were talking about what are they going to do about these recordings uh, that Ian Polowski made and turned over to the police. So he, Boyce had a conference with the uh, attorneys this morning in regards to the recordings in Ian Pawlowski. So the issue is um, that the defense wants to play them and the prosecution did not. So they decide to hear argument outside the presence of the jury so Jim Archibald is, argues for the defense. And he said that he asked for Ian to be dismissed completely and not testify at all, which I think is kind of funny to start it out that way, since you're the one that wants to hear his recordings. But he's like, now he he, he said, this is what he said. Uh, he's been pretty sassy this week. He said, since he was allowed to testify and he said he was a snitch <laughs> and made a secret recording at the Direction of Law Enforcement, um, you know, we should get to hear this because he married Melanie Boudreau, immediately married her, and then immediately found out about all this. And he and then he became a snitch. He said snitch, I think, more than once. Uh Archibald said that he listened to the recordings uh last night, and that they have already been admitted as discovery. Um, so they want to play a recording from Ian Pulowski, recording number nine, that was either on December 12th or 13th. And it's a conversation secretly recorded by Ian and it's um, his wife, Melanie talking on the phone with Chad and Lori. And they were discussing several different issues. Alex's death, the religious stuff they were always talking about a blessing and a blessing from Chad. um, And he said because this is being, you know, charged as a conspiracy that his client is being accused of and that it is in part because of these religious issues and religious beliefs. This is why he wants it played. It's 55 minutes long and he wants to play the whole thing for the court. He says that he thinks the recording is the best evidence rather than just having um, Ian talk about what was said on the recording. Uh, rather than it being something alleged or something that we could, could be hearsay that it's the actual statements, what people actually said. Um, <laughs> Archibald said, we don't believe some of what Pulowski has said so far to be fair and accurate. And so we would rather have the recording itself. So he was real, he was real nasty with Ian Polowski And I, I I think it's sad because Ian Pulowski, as soon as he discovered that there was some scary shit going on he immediately went to the police he's the the only one that like went to the cops and said hey there's some weird shit going on here we really should you know the you you guys need to know to the police right and so it's kind of too bad um you know that he's getting this treatment because he's one of the few people who actually did speak up at the time you're right gene innocent people don't run away I absolutely believe that about Melanie Pulaski. I have been unable to understand why she has not had charges up to this point, genuinely. So then Blake argued for the state. Also, first of all, she says it's objectionable to refer to Ian as a snitch. She didn't like them using that. And she said, you know, he was trying to help the police find missing children, which is true. And I, I agree that snitch term gets kind of shitty when he knew these kids were missing and he was worried about them and worried about his own. Um, you know, and he had known about some of the religious teachings from Lori and Chad, not just from the recordings, but they had talked to them as well. But she argued that the recordings are hearsay because there are multiple people talking on the recordings and that these could be self-serving statements. Cause see, this is another opportunity for Lori to testify without being able to be cross-examined because we can just hear Lori's side of things without the prosecution being able to talk to her. And this is problematic. You know, this will be the second time they're trying to get this done and they got it in the first time. Um, So Blake said, I want to be very clear, religious beliefs are not an overt act as charged by the state because Archibald is trying to say that Lori is being persecuted and charged for her religious beliefs, which is pretty rich when you consider the dead people in this situation. Um, And she's saying that is not what we're saying at all. Um, But what we're saying is that the, the defendants have used those beliefs to control other people and to make them do other things and that she is against having the recordings brought in. Um, Archibald says that the statements are of co-conspirators, which means that they aren't hearsay, uh, because it's Chad and Alex, um, on the recording and Lori, well, it's Chad and Lori on the recording, not Alex. Alex was dead at this point. Um, and the state has also alleged unknown co-conspirators. So Mel- Melanie Pulaski could be considered in that, which I'm quite sure she is and but he says so because of that because it's not hearsay if it's co-conspirators then the recording should be admitted. So Boyce then immediately takes a recess to his chambers to talk to his staff attorney. He clearly had some concerns and really didn't want to um, mess this up and let something in that shouldn't be let in because this this is very questionable. Hey, Fran. Hey, everybody. Thanks for piling in here. I see y'all coming in. I really appreciate that you're here. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. Trying to make Ian seem like a bad person. Yeah. But right. Exactly, Grace. If more people had been snitching, then maybe Charles would still be alive. And Tammy and, you know, all these other people. Like, it is, it's yucky to think that they were gonna, you know, that they're calling him a snitch when he was, he was trying to do the right thing. But ultimately, Boyce comes back um, and says that he does believe that they are, in fact, hearsay and will not be um, admitted. He also says that on cross-examination, if Ian contradicts what was said on the recordings, that that could open the door to having them played. So... If Ian says something that doesn't line up with what was on those recordings, then maybe they could play them to basically rebuke him. Uh, during that time when he, when Boyce was out talking to his staff attorney, Lori was like really passionately explaining something to her attorneys. I'm sure trying to explain what all this was or I'm sure she hates Ian because Ian, you know, didn't jump right in to her little circle and and comply like everybody else has. So they bring Ian back in, they bring Garrett Smith in, his attorney who sits on the front row, and then the jurors are brought in. And uh, so John Thomas does the cross-examination. He asks how he is, and Ian says, as well as can be, I guess, you know, I'm sure that he is sweating bullets. His wife has taken off, and <laughs> left him in this situation. And I know many of you are saying, how are they still married? Right? How are they still married? They've had a kid too. Since all this went down, it kind of amazes me that he stayed with her after finding out all of this stuff right after they got married. So they go through the whole how he met Melanie, how they, in November of 2019, they dated for 10 days before they got married in Las Vegas. Like some of this stuff is just repeat of what we've already heard, but they're trying to trip him up because they want him to contradict what's said in these recordings so that they can get the recordings. And that's really what the defense is trying to do. Um, So Thomas asks, you know, to talk again about how he asked Chad and Lori for permission to propose to Melanie. Um, He said it was because Melanie really saw Chad and Lori as kind of parental figures to her and her mom was dead and um, kind of felt like, You know, that would be the right thing to do. Seemed weird to me as well. Um, Thomas asked Ian about the castings. And he said that, you know, he remembers them being referenced in phone calls that he heard. um, And that you're trying to use a casting to expel a possession. Or he said a bug type of possession. Where something could crawl into your ear or brain. I had not heard anyone else say it that way. Um, and that during casting, you would pray to force the possession out of the body, which we've all heard that that's part of it, right? So he said, Ian reports to Thomas that he recorded conversations uh, with his wife for two weeks. And only he and the FBI knew he was doing that. And then on December 12th is when Alex Cox died, which was a huge blow to Melanie. Alex was her uncle and they were very close and she really was very upset and and really um, had a lot of grief over the loss of Alex. Um, This is interesting, had never heard this before. Ian said that on the day that Alex died, Lori told Melanie that she should go to a place of safety because there was going to be a spiritual attack that day. So she went to Ian's apartment and then they went to the temple and he recorded this entire conversation that Melanie had with Chad and Lori, but they were predicting an attack on the day that Alex died. Pretty telling stuff, pretty telling stuff Uh, to think about, you know, was this because they knew? that Alex was going to die? Did, you know, we all have questions about what does it mean? What, what does Alex's death mean? You know? And so now suddenly there's going to be this attack and then he dies on that day. I mean, I know we all wish we knew the truth of the Alex thing. And I think for a lot of us, we kind of do know, but we don't have the proof and that sucks. So after that, Ian said that the reason that he was making the recordings was he was trying to get anything that he could help to find Tylee and JJ, that that was his purpose for doing this. And that, you know, I mean, it's a pretty big betrayal. You just married this person and now you're recording her and her family members. Um, an interesting point that he made though, is he made nine recordings. And He said he's heard bits and pieces of them, but he didn't ever actually listen to them all the way through. He was recording phone calls and he wasn't actually listening to them. He never listened to them with law enforcement and he did review about 10 minutes of one before he um, testified at the grand jury, but he hasn't heard any of them since then. So the defense really wanted him to testify to what's in these recordings but the reality is he doesn't really know. He was recording them for law enforcement according to him and he really wasn't paying that much attention. Um he does know that he he recorded conversations that included Melanie, Alex, Lori and Chad. Um <laughs> one time Melanie was sick and Lori was on the on a call with her and she said so they're they're attributing everything that happens to them as some kind of Um, spiritual attack that satan is attacking them and she said she folded satan up like a taco and locked him in a box in antarctica and at that time um ian was told that there were spiritual attacks that were going to be coming for the next two weeks and then things would get better yeah right after alex died right um, there were a lot of blessings being given on these recordings. Ian said he gave Melanie a blessing when Alex died. Uh, and apparently, there were he said blessings were fr- flying around like flies. Um, Lori and Chad were giving her blessings over the phone, Melanie blessings over the phone for comfort to remove dark spirits. Um, when Ian called Chad to ask for Melanie's hand in marriage, which I find so very strange, so strange. Chad gave him a blessing to shield him from darkness. So there was a lot of talk of darkness and spiritual attacks happening around the time that they uh, were dating and got married. Um, Ian talked about how lots of people in Melanie's life take advantage of her. Um, Thomas wanted to know if Lori was one of them, and he said that she was. Um, Thomas wanted to know if Lori had manipulated Melanie financially. Um, and he said that there were a lot of things that were not true that Lori was telling Melanie. Uh, she was telling Melanie that Brandon is dark, that law enforcement officers uh, that were the ones, you know, talking about Hermesio and Hope again, Um, that were trying to look for the kids, that they were dark and that he should not cooperate with them. And, you know, the ones that were also investigating the shooting into the, the shooting at Brandon, that they were all dark. And so she should not be cooperating with any of them. So he recalls her saying, don't cooperate with the police. Lori's telling Melanie, don't, don't talk to the police, you know, That's really screwed up and scary. The devil is a delicious, spicy, but cold taco, right? Like what? (laughs) Hey, Rose, I'm so glad you made it live. It's nice to have you there. It's nice to have you have so many of you here. But right, like they're mixing up so many different things and so many different belief systems and they don't fully understand any of them, I think is one of the things that I find very aggravating about the things that they've done and taught is that they bastardized a lot of other people's beliefs. You know what I'm saying? And it really pisses me off. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm seeing her as a victim at all, but I am saying that was she manipulated by Lori? Yeah. But did she go along with Lori and support her in some bullshit? Yes, she did. Most definitely. But Ian felt like she was um, manipulated by them and taken advantage of. Remember that Zulema said when they were trying to get Zulema to move to Rexburg and she said, I can't I can't leave my job. I, What am I supposed to do? You know, I can't support myself without my job. And she said, oh, don't worry. Melanie's got lots of money. She'll take care of all of us. Remember when she said that? Yeah, that's the kind of stuff I think Ian was talking about today. Let's see. Uh, Thomas wanted to know if Chad and Lori ever said anything bad about him on these calls. And he says that he never heard them say anything bad about him. Um, I'm sure they have now, though. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) they're just trying to get this recording in so bad. So now Thomas says that it's obvious that Ian doesn't actually know what the recordings say. So they can't question him about what's in the recordings. So they want Ian to be able to listen to the recording from the December 12th and 13th recording. That was 55 minutes. They want Ian to be able to listen to it so that then they can question him about it. So then there was a big argument over that. Lots of contention. Um, Voice. ultimately said no. And so they couldn't do that. So they, they never did get any of the tapes in, which I got to say I was bummed about because I really wanted to hear them. And I was all ready to uh, do my, my crack audio record audio editing on them so that it would be easier to uh, hear them. Cause I'm very curious about they were being recorded when they had no idea they were being recorded. So it was very candid stuff. We are not going to get to hear it, which I think sucks. I was so ready to get that all up for you all. And nope, we didn't get that. Um, Apparently, um, Melanie found out that Alex had died because Zulema called her. And then Melanie called Chad and Lori. um, And he did record that call. Uh, He said he was trying to record as many calls as he could without looking suspicious, which I think he, he did a pretty darn good job. Uh, Melanie was distraught when Alex died. He was her uncle. She loved him. You know, she was very upset. Um, He said that she felt like he had been attacked by spiritual demons. So she, at this point, felt like that, you know, the attacks that had been being predicted had happened to him. Um, She told Ian that Chad and Lori, um, that that there was going to be a spiritual attack that day, like I said before, and then Alex died, and that confirmed it, Right. These guys are really great at creating their own, um, their own catastrophes and then confirming them. Uh, Ian says he doesn't know how Chad and Lori knew that there would be a spiritual attack that day and then Alex died. He doesn't know what any of that means or why it happened. Um, <laughs> he said, I think he's trying to explain some of this, but how do you explain this? He says there's reality and then there's layers of spiritual explanation that were laid over reality. Yeah. So they gave Melanie another blessing on the phone. Um, He did also say that he does not believe that a spiritual attack killed Alex. No, duh. Uh, So Thomas kept prompting Ian with things that clearly are in these recordings to see if he knew. And he was trying to trip him up because, again, he just wants those in so bad. He asks if he remembers... Chad and Lori saying they put shields of light around Melanie after Alex died. And he said, it sounds like something they would say, but he doesn't really recall. Um, Which I thought was kind of funny. He said that a lot because he clearly didn't really know what the calls said. He didn't listen to all of them. He recorded them for the police. Um, He asked if he remembers putting hands on Melanie's head for a blessing while Lori and Chad were on the phone. Uh, He said he doesn't remember doing that, but if he heard it on the on the recording, he must have. So that's where they basically end it because they cannot get out of Ian what they want. They they can't um, confront him with, you know, this is not what was said in the recording because he just genuinely doesn't know. So we didn't get really any information from these recordings that I wish we had get, got. I wish we'd been able to listen to them. Uh, so... Um, Blake didn't have any redirect questions, so they release him from the stand. So uh, Thomas wants to wants Ian to remain under subpoena, so they can call him again during the defense case. And then it says, given the posture of Mr. Pulowski, we believe it's likely. It's unlikely he should come back should we need him to come back. So we ask that he not be released from the subpoena. In other words, saying that he'll run and and not come back, which he's the guy that didn't run. So I don't know. Um, But Blake wants him dismissed from the subpoena. So they dismiss him from the state subpoena and the defense is going to issue their own subpoena for him. And that uh, his attorney did say that he would come back if he was served with another subpoena. So he may be back for the defense. We'll see if they're going to try to get those recordings in then. I don't know. I I don't think they are. So that's where it ended with Ian. You know, I really expected Ian's testimony to be a lot more of a bombshell than it was. Uh, Really kind of a bummer. Because there's a lot that he recorded that we can never, we won't get to know. Right. And they probably did, you know, he got pretty used to their, to what they were saying. And so he probably doesn't remember all of it. Yeah. Right. Maybe Ian will just break the rules to get out of the defense testifying. And I don't know yet. I I still don't know what they're going to do with Melanie. I know, you know, obviously the prosecutor said it was okay for her to leave, but she's still under subpoena and they want her on the stand. So shall we see i know what did he mean posture i think maybe like position being married to melanie i don't know it was strange it was a strange thing to say and it was definitely a dig like well if we don't keep him under subpoena he'll not come back even though he showed up and came and promised that he followed the rules and like he did not do what his wife did but boy they treated him nasty so then we get on the stand, Taylor Ballard. And Taylor Ballard is a health insurance broker in Rexburg. And uh, Chad Daybell was his client. So this was all really interesting. He met with Chad on October 31st of 2019. So that would have been just a couple of weeks after Tammy died. Not even quite two. And he wanted to get health insurance starting November 1st. Because see, his health insurance came from his wife's job. So he didn't have health insurance. He was losing his health insurance. And he wanted to get insurance for himself and some of his adult children. So he needed to report what his income was going to be so that they could determine what was going to go on. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to get on Medicaid. Um, and Taylor Ballard said that he didn't normally do, um, you know, Medicaid applications, but said that, you know, they would do that since they, you know, since they'd been a client before the, the Daybells had, but they had to know his income. They, what he thought his income was going to be for 2020, uh, to see if he would qualify. Right. And he said, that it would be $20,000. So then health and welfare asked for his tax return. And his tax return was more money than that. And so he did not qualify for Medicaid. Uh, So then um, he also asked, Chad asked, if I remarry, will I be able to put my wife on my insurance? Because think about this: she's not on any insurance. Lori's not got any insurance because she was getting things like that through Charles. Now, did the jury hear the Ian posture subpoena comments? Yes, the jury was in the room at that time. Yes, but you know, neither neither of these two dummies have any medical insurance now because uh, they killed their spouses that were supplying those things so then he wants to know if he remarries and he add his new wife to his insurance policy and they tell him that yes as long as it's within 60 days of the date of marriage and so at the at that point it was just going to be chad and his son mark that the one that was just on the mission that they were going to get um insurance for and um, So, you know, they kind of go back and forth with just like the communication that they had, which was just emails back and forth about, you know, various plans and, you know, how it was going to, what it was going to cost and stuff like that. Um, so the, she asked to refer to her notes, got permission for that. And then she said, she, he said, he said, sorry, um, that law enforcement had received everything that this insurance broker had on Chad Daybell. And John Thomas jumps up with an objection and asks that Ballard be immediately excused as a witness. So then there was another argument. Mark is not married, no. No, Mark is the one that was on the mission in um, Africa. Phil, remember yesterday in court, um it would have, yes, it would have been a fiscal question to qualify for Medicaid in Idaho. It wasn't a medical issue. it was financial because we have a we have Medicaid expansion. Um, but yeah, so they are having this big argument about because they say they've turned over all the information to the the police on this, and in the insurance stuff and apparently the defense is trying to say that they've never received it. Uh so now we go to break again. This this day it kind of sucked because it was mostly arguing about stuff. But they go um on break so they can get through this to figure out where that information is from. Well, what happened is that the insurance information was turned over to the defense but it was turned over to Mark Means not Thomas and Archibald. They have it, but they had apparently never looked at it. So now they've got Ballard back on the stand. Um, so he paid his premiums for January. Um, and he kind of picked his plan, what he was going to do. And this was in January. And he put himself and his son, Mark, on uh, the insurance And then on March 11th of 2020, Chad goes into this office to talk about putting his new wife on for coverage. He tells them that he got married November 5th and that his new wife was now incarcerated and that he was really worried about something happening to her. And they said, well, she doesn't qualify to enroll because it was outside the 60-day window because they'd already told him that. Well, it turns out that they did qualify because they had moved to Hawaii and then moved back and that that was a qualifying event. And so he wanted medical insurance and dental for himself, Lori and Mark. Uh, he gave Lori's name to the uh, insurance agent as Lori Ryan Daybell. Um, he wanted to know if there were any children that needed to be insured. And he said, no. One more question, one more person that he had told that that there were no children. And also Lori Ryan Daybell, not Lori Vallow Daybell. Lori has a lot of names. Um, Then there was some cross-examination on that. Uh, Wanting to know about Chad's income. And about without his wife, that you know, that it would be twenty thousand dollars. Uh, but health and welfare, I guess, figured it out to be thirty thousand, and then that was the end of that witness. But it was pretty interesting, just that little bit there at the end about Lori Ryan Daybell. Here we have them lying again. Um, and you know using that name and saying, no, there aren't, there aren't any minor children to be insured one more way that, you know, yeah, those kids were dead and they knew it. Yeah. Right. Snow Queen. I hope so too, that, um, that the jury is paying attention to all these comments of there being no children. I think that's one of the reasons they're bringing all these people on. They've got to confirm a lot of things, but they want the jury to hear how many times these people reported that Lori didn't have any kids. Yeah. Right. And yeah, did she have her old social security card with Lori Ryan on it? Because she was going by Vallow. We don't have any proof that she changed her actual name to Daybell. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the reason they call her Lori Vallow is because in the Idaho court system, that's the name she is listed as. She did marry Chad. But there's no indication that she actually went through and changed her name, like on her on a driver's license or a social security card or anything. So she goes she's going by Valo or, or Valo because we're pretty sure that is actually her legal name at this point. But yeah, she probably um, hung on to all of that stuff with previous names just in case. It seems like that was there was some intention behind that. Right, Lydia. As much as she hated Joe Ryan, she sure loved using his name. Didn't she, though? That's pretty gross to have maligned him the way that she did, but then fall back on that last name when she when it suits her. Uh, Let's see. So then we get Angela Yancey. Angela Yancey um, worked at the Sugar Salem School District um, as the payroll and benefits administrator. So that was the school district that Tammy worked for. Um, so Tammy made a change to her life insurance plan in September of 2019, literally a month before she died. Um, so she made a change to her voluntary life insurance that she had access to through the school district if she wanted it. So she she was hired at the school district in 2017, and at the time she elected the minimum amount, which was ten thousand dollars. And she never, she didn't change it in 2018. In 2019, she requested an increase and signed the form. Um, And then Chad also signed it because she elected the spousal coverage. So the form is signed and dated on September 8th, 2019. Does that date ring a bell to anybody? September 8th is the day that Lori and Alex and Tylee and JJ were in Yellowstone. It is literally the last day that uh, Tylee was seen alive. It went into effect retroactively to September 1st. And she changed it to the maximum amount, which was five times her salary. So it went from $10,000 to $130,000. Right? That one, I knew she had changed it, but holy crap, you guys, that's a huge change! And she did it herself, she went in and asked, um, for it, you know. And and but clearly, this had been a conversation she'd had with him with her husband to have done that. Um, Chad visited um, the school the Monday morning after Tammy died. So Tammy died on a Saturday and he arrived at the school on Monday to make a life insurance claim. She said in her career over, 50, uh, over however long she's worked for the school district, she's helped about 15 um, families who had an employee who died to get their life insurance. And she felt like that was real soon for him to have been in, two days. And she said, you know, I, we can't do anything until you have a death certificate. And she said, Chad said, that's okay. I've already ordered eight of them. Now she said that she'd never heard of anyone ordering eight. When my parents died, we were told to order 15 each, because there are a lot of places that have to have an original death certificate. So I don't think the number was significant so much. Um, But I do definitely think that the uh, two days later showing up to claim the life insurance was real, real soon. Uh, He did go back on the 25th. So she died on the 19th. He's back on the 25th with a death certificate, which that is fast for the death certificates. And she was out of town. So we had to wait till the 30th of October. To make the claim on that life insurance policy but he was chomping at the bit to get at that money but gross right yeah talk about tacky go in there right two days after she i i cannot imagine having been through this with both of my parents and having to make insurance claims and stuff two days no way in hell So on the thirtieth, he came back with the forms he needed, and they made the claim and they paid out one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Just yikes! Um, So Thomas. uh, So that no further questions. That was Tanya Rawlings. It was uh, on on direct, and it was uh, John Thomas on cross. he wanted to know if Chad and Tammy came in together to fill out, fill out that beneficiary form when she made the change. And she said she didn't, not to her knowledge, that it was Tammy that did came and got the form. Um, so he goes back over the history of the life insurance policies, which we already know. Um, you know, we've already talked about that, so it's really not that important. Um, and then Thomas is done with Yancey. So then we get Detective Colin Nesbitt. So he is with the Kauai Police Department, and Rachel Smith was talking with him. Uh, He says that on January 25th of 2020, he was helping the Rexburg police by serving a legal document to Lori Vallow. So Rexburg police were there um, in Kauai because they were obviously investigating, looking for her kids and trying to figure out what they were doing. And so they asked for help to locate and serve her. Uh, They found her at a condo in Princeville. She was, they were hanging out of the pool, guys. They were sitting in chairs in their bathing suits, hanging out at the pool. Um, They gave her a copy of the papers and asked if she had any questions. And then, you know, they recorded that it had been served. And that was when the judge here... Had ordered her to show up in Idaho by this certain date with your children physically with you, either to the Department of Health and Welfare or the Rexburg Police Department. You had to have them physically with you to prove to us that they're okay. Which gross. Right? And did Chad look like a beach whale in his speedo? I, I don't know. I think I think he looked like an ignorant little weasel, but Probably. (laughs) He's probably white as hell because he's from Idaho. A very big taco. Yes, a very big taco. (laughs) Put Chad in a taco, put him in a box and send him to the North Pole. Rhombohedral, I think you're right. (laughs) So that's kind of how they first got uh, got involved with Lori and Chad in Kauai. So now they admit a thumb drive. This is his body cam uh, that they show for the jury. And it shows them laying by the pool in their swimming suits. Gross. Um, the officer just says, do you have any questions regarding that? And Chad kind of sits up and leans over like he's looking at what's going on. And she says she doesn't have any questions. And then they leave. Um, apparently, those that were in the courtroom said that Lori was really staring at the monitor on the, at their table. Uh, during that video. It was her and Chad sitting by the pool, living it up. So I'm sure she wanted to see that. So then on January 26th of 2020, Nesbitt um, went with a team to serve serve a search warrant on Chad Mori's vehicle um, at their condo. Um, And they were found driving the vehicle um, at the time, driving 30, they were about 30 minutes from Princeville. But remember, we've already talked about how much surveillance they were doing of them with their phones. They knew exactly where they were. So police pulled them over. Lori was driving. Uh, They gave her the search warrant and let her take um, any personal items. They said cash and medicine were things that she could take from the car. Um he looked through her purse and found a credit card with the name Tylee Ryan on it. Using your dead daughter's card. That's really gross. Um, It really stood out to him because he knew that Tylee was missing. So he kept that card as evidence and it was bagged. Um, So there were a bunch of pictures shown. So they took a bunch of different things. This is when, um, you may have seen the video of when Nate Eaton um, confronts Lori in in Kauai because he was right there. And he um, asked her, you know, where are your kids? Do you know that there are a lot of people worried about your kids and praying for them? And, you know, she did one of these. And if you go to News.com, you can see that video. I remember it very well, though, because it was the first time we in our community knew that the authorities knew where she was. So it was like there was some actual movement here because up to that point, we didn't know that they had been surveilling her and knew where they were. So there were a bunch of pictures of things that um, they took pictures of as they were with evidence. So they have Tylee's uh, credit card, uh, another visa credit card, uh, Lori's cell phone. The phone was seized. They bagged the car and the phone and they sent them to the Rexburg police. Uh, There was a blue and white striped bag and the bag had, they, they basically had a go bag, you guys. In that bag, they had birth certificates, death certificates, a marriage certificate, a rental agreement, and a patriarchal blessing. They were carrying all of these legal documents that they would need with them in the car. There was also a black Jansport backpack, and in that were two computers, two laptops that they seized. They also seized a book called Visions of Glory, and Visions of Glory is a book that has probably been the impetus to a lot of their beliefs. I haven't read it yet, but it is something on my list of things. I want to read it because from what I understand, a lot of the dark and light scale and a bunch of that kind of stuff actually came from that book. Uh, they put, seized another phone. This phone has the initials JJ written in red on the case, which creepy. They also seized a tablet uh, and a bunch of other papers, including um, Charles Vallow's death certificate. There were 14 to 15 copies of that. Um, let's see. Then they also had JJ's birth certificate. Um, They had JJ and Kylie's social security cards and a receipt from the Madison school district with JJ's name on it and a birth certificate for Kylie Ryan. Um, They had birth certificates for JJ in his birth name, Kane and Trahan, and in his adopted name. So they had both of those. They also had Lori's lease agreement for her Rexburg apartment. And the written copy of the patriarchal blessing that Chad gave to Alex. All of that with them. They also had an envelope full of money. And there there's some documents that have like sticky notes all over them with notes on them. One of them says Hiplos. One of them says Brandon. And below Brandon, there's a word that A-N-G-O, which I'm not sure what that meant. And there's another sticky note that says Gladius on it. So these were like notes they were taking about the people who were possessed or whatever. Uh, Let's see. Um, They searched also their condo. There was no evidence that the kids had ever been there. He said they found a bag of silicone rings. Now, there have been a lot of jokes about these rings. What kind of rings were they? You know, some people wear those silicone wedding rings, but it was this a sex toy type silicone ring. We don't know. But that was one thing that they seized in the house. But that kind of grossed me out, to be perfectly honest. I don't want to know. But yeah, they looked for evidence that there had been kids in that condo and there was nothing to indicate that there'd been anything there that you know, that clothing or toys or anything that would have been the kids. Okay. Let's see until so they have lunch and then they come back and Nesbitt's still on the stand. John Thomas is going to cross-examine him. Um, he asked what he was, what was the detective looking for when he searched the search warrant on? the car. And he said he was looking for signs of the missing kids. Um, he They asked if, there, if they'd collected any trace evidence in the car. Thomas wanted to know if they'd taken any trace evidence to see if there were any evidence of the kids in the car. He said that they had not done that. He wanted to know if you were looking for a child, isn't that something you would try and collect? And he said... Uh, yes, but they didn't in this case. I mean, I mean, come on, you guys, they, they knew these kids were dead with all the information that they had. I don't think they had any question that, um, these kids were dead. So then Thomas just go through verifying all of the things that they seized. Um, apparently the envelope of money had somewhere between 5,000 and $5,500 in it. I'm serious. They had a go bag. They had all of their electronics with them. They had all of their legal documents with them. They had um, a bunch of cash. Like they were ready to run if they needed to, but they were still just driving around, living it up. Um, There was one bike um, in the cargo area of the car but it was obvious that there wasn't any place for kids to sit because the bike was taking all the space and that, you know, he further reiterated again, there's no further question. You know, that there's no evidence at all that there were kids with them at any point. So next they call officer Ryan Pilar, And so defense objects to him again, because he's a Gilbert, Arizona police officer. And You know, they don't want him on the stand. It's the Idaho Rule 404B. It's been objected to over and over again with everything to do with the Arizona cases. And the judge overrules that again. Uh, So he was um, one of the officers that worked the Brandon Boudreaux shooting. Uh, He said when he got there, there was a black Tesla that was registered to Brandon Boudreaux on the scene. And then he became, Pilar was assigned to the, as the primary investigator of that case. He said he interviewed Brandon. Brandon said he left his house with four kids that, that morning. He dropped three off um, at home. And then he took the last kid to Melanie's house. And then he went to the gym. And then when he came back, he was shot at, you know, as we've heard this story many times. They um, did get ring, ring doorbell footage that confirmed that there was a Jeep that was idling in front of his house for about an hour and a half. So they'd been sitting there waiting a while. Talked about how the wheel was removed off the back of the Jeep Wrangler. And so the back window couldn't open all the way if the wheel was there. That's why they took the wheel off because they wanted to be able to roll that window all the way down. Um, Ring footage shows um, and witnesses reported a gunshot at 914. So they actually have video of it. A bullet hole was found in the driver's side door of Brandon's Tesla. And they did have some of the projectile fragments from that when it hit the door. There was glass also because it broke a window in the car. Um, this is when they start to put some things together because he learns he's going, Brandon's going through a divorce with his wife, Melanie and then he learns about Melanie's aunt Lori Vallow and her brother Alex Cox and how they were involved in in a shooting in July which was the shooting of Charles and so the police in Arizona are starting to put together there's this whole circle of people that some serious shit is going down with you know I'm sure they were really beginning to wonder what they what they were looking at here um So they learned also there was a gray Jeep at the scene of Charles Vallow's shooting. Same gray Jeep, no less. Um, So there was a, there's a, in Arizona, they have license plate readers and they were able to find that Jeep traveling Well, it's not just in Arizona. It's all over the place. But they ran that license plate number. They found it traveling in Idaho Falls on October 1st, and then it was in Arizona, and then it was back in Idaho Falls on October 3rd. So, like, it was in Idaho Falls, Arizona on the 1st, then they caught it in Arizona and back in Idaho Falls on the 3rd. So in just a three-day span, he had driven all the way from here to there and back. Um, So they could identify the, the Jeep. They knew that it was the same Jeep. Which still, I am i don't know, I guess they just still are not, uh, I still think that there's probably charges coming from this, but we'll see. So using, because of the license plate reader information of where the Jeep had been, that's when they reached out to and got Fremont County and then um, Madison County involved looking for that Jeep. And then that's when he found out, um, this officer found out about Tammy Daybell's death. Because uh, they're starting to put this all together. Apparently, Pilar spoke to um, the Fremont County uh, coroner about Tammy's death and about how they were looking for this Jeep and the suspect of the shooting, which was Alex Cox. And he did, you know, the cell phone search warrants and all that stuff. And, you know, discovered that Alex's phone was in that Jeep parked by Brandon's house during the time of the shooting and then left for Idaho, that it was that Jeep and that phone. They know for sure that Alex was the shooter, but was, you know, can they, can they tie Lori to it? Can they tie Melanie, Chad, anybody? I don't know. I They've said that they think they can tie Lori and Melanie, but not Chad. So then they got in touch with the FBI and that's when really all the law enforcement agencies put this together that, holy shit, something's going on and now we've got missing kids. Um. He, he was, he knew about how the police were told in Rexburg that JJ was with Melanie Gibb. And they actually went to two different homes where Melanie Gibb was known to have lived and that she wasn't at either location. They went looking for her. And they tried to call her, but she didn't answer. And she was in Utah at the time that it happened. Um, but they actually set up surveillance cameras at Melanie Gibbs house to try to capture her on video and try to figure out if she did have JJ. But they couldn't find, they didn't find anything. They did also talk to Colby Ryan and he didn't at the time even know where they were, didn't even know where they were living. So they continue, you know, investigating the shooting. Um, They did come to Rexburg, Pilar and his team came to Rexburg and processed the Jeep after it was found and seized in early December. They seized photos, biological evidence and gunshot residue. Evidence was collected and there was gunshot residue on the back of the Jeep. Was interesting, and then they kind of go through you know the the night of the welfare check with the kids, and everything that went on with Rexburg. Um, Pilar had data on a phone that was assigned to Tylee and he saw that it was used in Arizona and Idaho, but in December it showed up in Hawaii, and it also showed up in Missouri for a brief time. So. Lori, we know Lori had been using Tylee's phone, but she used it in Arizona. She used it in Idaho. She used it in Missouri and she used it in Hawaii. Isn't that gross? Using her dead daughter's phone. That's just, ugh. that's one of the reasons they found them in, in Hawaii. Um, Brandon and Melanie did have a life insurance policy. Um, that was $200,000. So if um, the policy was still active at the time that Brandon was shot at, and if he had died, Melanie would have received over $200,000. Of course, we also know that she received a uh, divorce um, payout of $300,000. Pilar said that he saw several Venmo exchanges made between Lori, Chad, Alex, and Melanie. And there were text messages talking about cash exchanges. Uh, The defense did not like that Pilar said how much money Melanie got in her divorce. Um, They made an objection about that. But we know that it was $300,000. It's already been reported in other ways. And that is where that hearing ended for the day. But so they let the they let the jury go and then they were going to have one more argument because today didn't have enough arguments. I mean, a huge amount. Right. Lori had to use the phone to pretend to be Tylee. It's true. But it still is just gross that she was taking it everywhere and and it was active all those places that she went. So it looked like Tylee was going all those places, even though it's, you know, was very clear they could never prove that Tylee was physically there. Yes, that's true that uh, Melanie did show up at Brandon's parents who wouldn't leave and got arrested in Utah um, mm-hmm. after all of the, the stuff had gone down. Because basically Brandon went into hiding with their children because he was afraid he was going to get killed or they were going to get killed or he was going to get killed, you know. So they let the jury go and then they had um, a big argument about the witness that's going to be on the um stand tomorrow. So tomorrow court is only, it only lasts until noon and it's only one um, witness, but it's a really important witness. So there is some kind of a summary exhibit from this witness that that the uh, prosecution wanted to admit into evidence. The defense really objects to that And so then they have an argument about this. So the exhibit is from Douglas Hart. He is the former FBI special agent um, who ran criminal investigations for uh, counties in Southern Idaho. And he supervised agents that did criminal investigations in Idaho. He retired in 2022 um, and is now the chief deputy for Canyon County. But he would be testifying in the work he did with the FBI so he had reviewed every report done by any member of the FBI in this case and he was like a main integral part in the partnership between all these agencies and so the state wants him to testify um you know to all of the findings and sort of the cuz he has everything he's seen all the reports um but it's huge he needs He needs this summary because, I mean, in just one of Lori's iCloud accounts, it's 23,000 pages of documents. That there are over 100,000 points of data uh, in text or records, and they don't want to print them all and hand them to the jury. It's just insane. Nobody could do it. So he created a summary document. So, what he did was he found common topics and grouped them together in his findings to make it easier. That it's a pretty lengthy exhibit. I think it's 160 pages long. Um, But it will kind of help him go through the documents. It's to prompt him more than anything because it's so much information. Um, So, Archibald has reviewed the exhibit and he wants the report and the witness excluded. They got the, oh, there. They're so big on this. This is such a defense attorney thing. This report was emailed to us May 2nd at 5.49 p.m., Your Honor. Can you just hear John Pryor saying that? Um, so this was a summary that was given to them, at least. they—they, they, I guess it's um, their practice to give these summaries to the defense or to each other, either side, at least a day before this person testifies. Um. But Archibald doesn't like what has gone on here. So he said that Hart has prepared the witnesses and done witness prep meetings um, as far as like the, F- the FBI agents who have testified. And so he's been very involved in the case. And he was, um, when we found out he was interviewing all of the witnesses, so he was prepping them, they asked for a recording of that prep and the FBI doesn't record those. So they couldn't get the witness prep meetings and they were mad about that. Um, Archibald says that uh, special agent Hart is sitting on all the witness interviews and now wants to put them on the stand to testify, which there've been so many arguments about this. The original interviews all got turned over. Um, But then if there was any kind of follow-up or anything, the um, defense wants it, right? Except that not all of that gets recorded. Like if they just are reviewing it and they don't change anything, then they don't like turn over a new report. So the defense likes to imply that there's some malfeasance going on with that. But in hearing them explain it in other hearings, it doesn't seem like that is the case. Um, he says that because he's been doing this, this witness prep, that that violates the exclusionary rule. Um, Archibald had examples from exhibits that he said is argument, not a summary. Um, so some of it is about the way that these things are written. So he wrote them, not just as a summary, but there's opinion in them. Pro, this is what Archibald said. What we have here is essentially the FBI saying, State of Idaho prosecutors, there is, here is your closing argument. Here is how you sell this to the jury. Here is our evidence. Here is our argument. And we are going to disguise this as a summary so the jury can read it. It was the implication. Uh, Archibald said that he's concerned if Hart testifies uh, because he's talked to, he doesn't know how many witnesses. Um, And so he wants him excluded. And if the court will not exclude him, um, Archibald wants the summary excluded. So Boyce, um, asked to confirm that the defense received this exhibit right before 6 PM on Tuesday. She says that is when it was sent. Uh, she said the state had done preparation, um, with a prosecutor present and the the defense would want those witnesses excluded too. It's like anytime the prosecutor talks to anybody, then they want to call foul on that, which they have to be able to talk to people. I mean, they just do. So Smith said that nobody had discussed testimony with Hart they were just prepping, he was prepping witnesses, but he wasn't discussing testimony that had occurred Um, and that he can't comment on what somebody else said or did, but what his testimony will do um, is the work that he did on like the iCloud accounts and the overall investigation. And then, you know, how do you ask the jury to sift through a hundred thousand records? without some kind of frame of reference. I it's It makes sense. I mean, there's got to be a summary. Um, so Boyce says that they can question him about violating the exclusionary rule on the stand um, if he thinks he violated it. But what they're saying is he was prepping the witnesses. He wasn't talking to them after they testified. He was talking to them before they testified. Um. voice excludes the exhibit because of its size and volume. It's a 160-page exhibit and he doesn't think it's fair to have the defense to go, have to go back through all of that information again. Um he also says that the exhibit is a closing argument PowerPoint and that Hart was editorializing the evidence. Which definitely he should have just been giving the information, but not you know opinion. So he can testify tomorrow, but he can't use the 160 page exhibit during his testimony. Um, if he if they change the language in the exhibit, then he'll let it in. But as the way it is now, um, because it's argumentative, it can't be in. So, I. Um, so Smith said that they would revise this giant document. Um, but then, you know, he's concerned about the defense getting it. This is it's really complicated. But basically what he did is he put all this information together, but he included his opinion. He included argument in it, not just the evidence. And that's a mistake. It should have just been just the evidence. So he can testify. Hart can testify tomorrow, but he can't use that document, which I would imagine it will be hard for him to testify tomorrow without using that document, because it's a lot of information. I don't know what's going to happen, but I will be there in the in the um, courtroom in Madison tomorrow. So I will be able to update you on everything that happens. Um, I just don't know exactly how this is going to go. Uh, do you think Boyce has made decisions based on his religion? Because I do. I I would be curious, Colleen, if you could tell us which decisions you think were based on his religion, and what you think his religion is. Because I know a little bit about him, and I don't think he's as defensive of the Mormon Church as you think he might be. But I'm curious as to what you think was religion based as far as decision was concerned, and we can talk about it. So if you want to put that in the chat, go ahead, because we had one other uh, hearing today. So there was a Chad Daybell hearing today, which we haven't had one of those in quite a while. So this was um, a status conference for Chad. And this happened in the same courtroom. Um, They had Chad on Zoom. So what this was for was to schedule Chad's trial. Because we haven't, it's not been scheduled. And so there was a lot of discussion back and forth about how much time they were going to need for the trial and when it should be held. So Lori wasn't present for this. Pryor um, took Archibald's spot and Archibald sat in the audience. Uh, let's see. So they had Chad on Zoom. He was in his usual white shirt and tie, you know looking completely blank, as he always does. So Boyce starts by asking prior, you know, what do they think about how long it needs to be and that kind of thing? Um, or, well, they asked both the defense and the prosecutor. Lindsey Blake said the trial needs to be eight weeks and is, is going to defer to the court to schedule but just wants the court to consider um, like witness schedules and holidays in mind. Um, She also wanted to know if the jury questionnaire is the process will be the same as at Lori's trial, because that could make, that could add a week to the trial, which definitely. Um, Also because there will be the mitigating mitigation death penalty phase as well. So, so she kind of says nine weeks would be safer. So then they ask prior and we all know, Pryor is a dramatic son of a gun. He says he plans to call seven to eight experts to the stand and will need an entire transcript of Lori Daybell's trial. And he will bitch about this forever. No matter what they give him, it will not be good enough. Um, He doesn't want to run into any discovery issues. And he says that Chad will need time to go over the entire audio of Lori's trial. Holy crap. Can you imagine? So he predicts that the trial will take 10 to 12 weeks, including the time to pick the jury and the mitigation phase. And he asks to hold the trial in May of 2024. May of 2024. Oh. He also says, because he's... uh, uh, Pryor. Um, he says he's been working well with prosecutors, and they've offered to put all of the evidence on one hard drive to make it easier for him and his ex- experts. I cannot even tell you how many hard drives all of this evidence has been put on for John Pryor. He bitches and moans and they have to put it on something else for him, and then they have to do it again and then they have to it's ridiculous. This whole evidence and hard drives thing has been, a a real hot button with Pryor from the very beginning. And the prosecutors just cannot do enough for this man. Um, So then Boyce starts asking Pryor about the DNA. So here's the DNA situation. You may remember back prior to um, the trials being severed, there was this DNA that the state lab could not process. It needed to go to a private lab. So they sent it out to a private lab, Several things came back from that private lab. Those things did include the hair that identified Lori, the hair that was on the duct tape, and there were a few things. So there's one other little tiny bit of evidence that may or may not be usable DNA. It is going to take a huge process, and it will have to be done along with uh, genealogical, like genealogy DNA mapping along with the uh, actual DNA testing to identify who it who it has come from and um, Pryor absolutely refused to go to trial until he had that. Well Lori would not um, Lori would not waive her right to speedy trial so that's when they severed the cases It was over this DNA right Well he wants to know, if he's gotten that DNA processed yet. And Pryor said, no, he needs to get with Rob Wood on that. Still hasn't even started the process. I'm going to tell you why, though, because Pryor shot himself in the foot on this pretty bad. So there was this giant argument in a hearing that I was at in in person in Fremont County over this DNA. And the prosecution said, we're not interested in it. We're not going to worry about it. It's very likely, the lab is saying very likely, it won't it won't result in any in any information. So we're not going to process it. And Archibald is like, well, we can't wait to process it because we've got a speedy trial problem. We have to go to court. And John Pryor was like, well, this is why I want the trial severed. So <laughs> they severed the trials. And then uh, the judge let uh, Pryor know that he could work with the prosecutor's office to get that evidence to have it processed. So do you know who's going to have to pay for that? Chad's defense. The state has paid for all of the other processing of um, DNA and stuff. But they weren't interested in this, so they're not paying for it. So he got his severance, but he also got landed with the bill on that DNA, which is probably the actual reason why he has not done it because it's going to cost a lot. So, um, I that just yeah, he so Blake was concerned about the trial being scheduled in the fall because it could fall around holidays and that's really problematic. And Pryor says that's not good for him either. And then, you know, they start talking about. Early 2024, and everybody's pretty busy in March, April, and May. So, they have now set the trial to begin in June of 2024. June, holy shit, you guys! This is gonna take forever. Oh, um, and that was the end of that hearing. But yeah, we did learn some interesting things uh, there. Yeah. I don't think he gives a damn about that DNA, to be perfectly honest. I think he he has wanted to get these trials severed all along and has fought for it for years, and this was his way. He found his way to get those trials severed. I don't think that DNA is going to tell a shit, to be perfectly honest, and neither did the prosecution. And, you know, but this is that's what's got the trials severed. So now... We're looking at CHAT in 2024, so there'll be a bazillion more of these status conferences and arguments over all of the evidence, again, that we've already had with the two when they were uh, joined. So that's everything that happened today. Um, an interesting day, a very contentious day. It's frustrating when there's so much sidebarring and and stuff that you. it's like they can't make very much progress. And tomorrow, the only um, the only uh, witness scheduled is FBI Special Agent Hart. And so it's only scheduled for half a day. And, of course, there's going to be a big argument about whether or not he has violated the exclusionary rule and all that jazz. So we'll see what happens. But I will be there. I'll be live tweeting and live Facebooking that. And um, why did Pryor want to stay on this case? Oh, clout, you guys. Pryor is an extremely arrogant person. This is all about the, uh, this is all about the clout. He thinks he's really doing something here. We'll see if this trial ever even happens, because I'm sure that they're wanting to see the outcome of this trial and the response by the jury and all that stuff. Um, You know, I mean, will he really go to trial? Is he really that dumb? I mean, there's so much more evidence in this case against Chad than there is against Lori. I mean, the, yeah, it's crazy, but wild. So I still think there's a, a good chance he'll plead, but we, we shall see. And I will be in the courtroom uh, tomorrow, live tweeting, live Facebooking. And then um, I will do a live stream tomorrow evening and sum up what we get to hear from Uh, Special Agent Hart. I'm curious without his notes what he is going to be able to come up with. I hope he has a damn good memory because he's going to need it. Uh, If you would like to support us, you know how to do it. Go to truecrimesquad.com. There's a couple ways to do that there. We appreciate all of you for being here and hanging in here with all of this because it is some wild stuff. And you know it. We are the True Crime Squad. Have a great night. Uh